Tim is immediately shot in the heart and pretty much dies immediately. It's so sad. <laughs> anyway. You are not making a strong case for me to read Injustice. Awesome. I just want to say. It's so sad. <clears throat> Sorry. Sorry, Rob. This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Hi, this is Jim Lee, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Con Podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Jurgens, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Today, I am Even, and I have with me... This is Steph. And Dustin is taking another vacation uh, to see to his business and the site and all the good things that we rely on. So it's just going to be us two as we delve into the four issues. Um, a few sort of news things that we decided were worth covering and a bunch of small comics plus a monkey wash and a listener uh, not a listener question a question for the listeners so without further ado let's start talking about our news we have upcoming dc kids graphic novels uh, a lot of them are for the batman universe type uh, characters first one on our list is shadow of the batgirl by Sarah Kuhn, who's a writer who's written some sort of superhero prose novels called Heroine Complex, and there's looks like three novels and a third, a fourth one coming out. Have not read them, but I saw in bookstores, and they look pretty cool. Uh, the art is by Nicole Gu, and she is described by DC's website as edgy, which I think mostly means that she drew for a series uh, that has. Uh, very R-rated titles, because um, her art honestly doesn't look that edgy. It's it's not super gory. It's not super uh, like scandalous. It's very bold. I'll definitely say that it's, it's got a really nice eye-grabbing look to it, but it's not really shocking me in what I would call edgy. Um, I do. I, I think it's very similar in some ways to the very cute art of Kara McGee on Black Carrie Ignite, which I've already raved about, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about today. <laughs> um, but I think it's just really cute looking. So, Shadow of the Batgirl, about, uh, let me read our summary. Cassandra Kane, teenage assassin, isn't exactly Batgirl material, not yet at least, but with Batgirl missing from Gotham City. Can Cassandra defy her destiny and take on a heroic mantle of her very own? She'll have to go through an identity crisis of epic proportions to find out. After a soul-shattering moment that sends Cass reeling, 
she'll attempt to answer this question the only way she knows how, learning everything she possibly can about her favorite hero, Batgirl. But Batgirl hasn't been seen in Gotham for years, and when Cass's father threatens the world she has grown to love, she'll have to step out of the shadow and overcome her greatest obstacle, the voice inside her head telling her she can never be a hero. So, I'm a little hesitant to trust these kinds of texts. Um, Stella, our, our great podcaster who does the show Batgirl to Oracle, did the review of Black Canary Ignite, and she kind of had a negative experience um, comparing the graphic novel with the the sort of solicitation text, which I just read for Shadow of the Batgirl. So there was a solicitation for Black Canary Ignite, talked about how it was a mother-daughter story, and honestly, it was more of a family drama. It wasn't focusing... Uh, primarily on Dinah and her mother. It was focusing on her mother and her father and her coaches and her teachers and her friends. So it was sort of like just an ensemble drama. It wasn't really focused on... And so Stella had an expectation of a mother-daughter drama that wasn't met by the book, but I think that's more a fault of advertising than necessarily the book being flawed. Um, so I... I would hold this text loosely when it comes to what we'd actually expect. Um, the book itself looks interesting. Um, Cassandra Kane's origin is so tied up with no man's land is very dark and gritty. And this has her in a library that seems fully functioning. So it doesn't have that end of the world apocalyptic vibe of the, the no man's land origin. So that's very different, and I'm very intrigued. I really love her original origin, but I'm also interested to see if they can do something different that still makes her feel like Cassandra Cain. Um, I really feel like the Cassandra Cain we see in the trailers and the posters for the Birds of Prey movie does not feel at all like Cassandra Cain. She, she's very talkative and kind of naive and... Just clueless. And while Cassandra Kane does have a lot of knowledge gap, she's not naive and she's definitely not clueless. So that that's really rubbed me the wrong way as a Cassandra Kane fan. I'm not a Cassandra Kane fan and that rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's not particularly an interesting character either, I think. Um, even if it weren't Cassandra Kane. Uh but I think Shadow of the Batgirl is much more interesting. Um even if you're not a Cassandra Kane fan. And I think as a Cassandra Kane fan, it, it looks like Sarah Kuhn probably has more uh, honoring of the source material than the movie does. Uh, the next book we have is The Oracle Code by uh, New York Times bestselling author Mariki Nijkjamp, which is a Dutch name, so I apologize profoundly for all Dutch listeners and the author because I don't know how to really say that. Um She's written some books about school shootings, it looks like. So there's sort of a connection between Oracle, you know, Barbara Gordon being shot by the Joker and the trauma that causes. Uh, seems similar to some of the school shooting stories and narratives that we've come up with. Um, and uh, the artist is Manuel Pretano, who looks like he's done a bunch of stuff for Zenoscope, as well as being uh, sort of a contracted DC guy. Um, we don't really have a lot of art to look at i mean we have we have about five pages of art to look at from shadow of the batgirl so we have much less to go on but the art looks much more um sort of dc what you'd expect from dc this is much more a teen thing so they're gonna try and match the more dc house style i think um which i i'm a fan of the dc house style at this point so i don't really have a problem with that 
Uh, the solicitation text says, This graphic novel explores the dark corridors of Barbara Gordon's first mystery, herself. After a gunshot leaves her paralyzed, Barbara Gordon enters the Arkham Center for Independence, where Gotham's teens undergo physical and mental rehabilitation. Now using a wheelchair, Barbara must adapt to the new normal, but she cannot shake the feeling that something is dangerously amiss. Within these walls, strange sounds escape at night, patients go missing, and Barbara begins to put together pieces of what she believes to be a larger puzzle. But this sus- but is this suspicion simply a result of her trauma? Fellow patients try to connect with Barbara, but she pushes them away, and she'd rather spend time with ghost stories that then participate in her daily exercises. Even Barbara's own judgment is in question. In the Oracle Code, universal truths cannot be escaped, and Barbara Gordon must battle the phantoms of her past before they swarm her future. So this text is even more vague than um, The Shadow of the Batgirl. The Shadow of the Batgirl actually gives us a bunch of concrete things, like Cassandra Cain is an assassin, and her father is a villain, and she has to fight her father. This one just says, there's mysteries and suspicion and trauma. It's like, you you cannot really tell much about what's really going to go on in this book, and I'm fine with that. It, I sort of think it builds less expectations so you can experience the story by itself without you know having those expectations that might be disappointed um it sounds like they're trying to de-age her i mean was she a teenager in the killing joke no it's not but this is part of dc's young adult line i mean black canary was never a teenager when she became a black canary and she was like 12 in black canary ignite so there's a difference between black canary and getting shot through the spine i don't know (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong, uh, but <laughs> Black Canary was aimed at kids, and this is aimed at young adults. So I okay. think that they're shooting for protagonists that are about the age of the um, the target audience, which I actually think is a mistake. Uh, it's my understanding that most young readers actually want to read books about people who are a little bit older than themselves. They like the fantasy of having a little bit more responsibility and power, but not something that's so alien to them that they can't find it too aspirational. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's uh, that's sort of theory. And, of course, there's exceptions to every theory um, in fiction. Uh, but, you know, this, this whole DC Kids line and DC Teen is very market-researched. Uh, it feels very much like they have put a lot of effort into their audience and what they're thinking about. And it, and it feels like maybe they've uh, listened to some of the wrong researchers, uh, but I hope not. I mean, I, I, as I've said, I love Black Canary Ignite. I've really enjoyed the Mara book. And I think a lot of these projects are taking risks. I mean, they're not just Batman and Harley Quinn and Joker books like Black Label. These are side characters like Cassandra Cain and Barbara Gordon and even mm-hmm. Black Canary, who's who's really not like a main character. She hasn't had her solo book for quite a while now. Um, and even her solo books have never been the kind of things that are really landmark so it's almost like they're trying to groom the next generation of readers to expect the side characters so we don't have this whatever we have now where we don't have any of the side characters have their own books and i think that's a great strategy i think that we need more different kinds of characters to tell different kinds of stories i have no problem with telling 
more Batman stories. You know, I don't think that's boring. Uh, I'm loving what Tom King's done. I think what Scott Snyder and Grant Morrison did were very interesting, uh, especially what Grant Morrison did with Batman Incorporated. Those are great ideas. It wasn't the same old story. That doesn't mean that different characters won't give you more opportunities, different uh, angles, different avenues that you can explore for the world. Um, and actually, one thing I'm kind of interested in is Shadow of the Batgirl implies that Batgirl's been gone for a long time. Could that be a hint that Shadow of the Batgirl and Oral Code are connected? None of the other books have been connected, but maybe this will be the first. I guess we'll wait and see. The next one I want to talk about is something I know we've talked about before, which is uh, Batman Tales Once Upon a Crime, which is a continuation of the Lil Gotham series by Dustin Nguyen and Derek Friedolfs. Uh, the solicitation for this is Gotham City is filled with stories of heroes and villains, of police and criminals, of families both lost and found. But the enchanted short stories in Batman Tales are brought to life with a classic fairy tale twist that will fill you with wonder. Once upon a crime in Gotham, Damian Wayne dreams of becoming a real boy wonder as long as he can avoid telling lies and making his nose grow. <laughs> Batman's butler takes an unexpected trip through the licking glass and finds himself in a topsy-turvy world for Alfred's in Wonderland. Gotham City Police Department detectives interrogate Gotham's most dangerous criminals, looking for the princess who stole the pea. And Batman meets a Snow Queen who leads him on a dangerous quest. So, these sound like uh, really fun little twists. I mean, the last um, series of Little Gotham was basically uh, everything was centered around a holiday. So they would do Halloween and Christmas and St. Patrick's Day and New Year's. And there's all these holiday-themed things. And this sounds like instead of doing a holiday, they're going to do fairy stories. And I think that'll be really fun. I'm very, very excited to see more of this. And I know that Dustin Nguyen just loves doing these kind of stories. So this is a passion product. It's not just you know, cashing in on something, but it's something that he just loves to do. So I think that shows in the art and the writing is just really whimsical and delightful. It sounds fabulous. Uh, it will be. I, I am very excited. And these are all coming out, by the way, in January and February of next year. So coming up, make sure you take a look at those. Um, and the last one I want to take, uh, take a quick mention of is um, Catwoman Soul Stealer, uh, which is an adaptation by famous comic book writer uh, Louise Simonson, who wrote a lot of Superman in the 90s and is uh, well-respected for a lot of different titles she's written. And art is by Samantha Dodge. Um, looks like she... This is one of her, her first things, it looks like Samantha Dodge is illustrating. Her samples on Twitter look quite cute, so I'm excited about that. Similar to Christian Wild Goose, who is doing the Batman Night Stalker graphic novel, which was also adapted from one of the prose novels. I think this is actually a much better project for DC than the prose novels. I enjoyed the idea of the prose novels, and I actually enjoyed the Catwoman Soul Stealer novel, but I think that... They were. It, it's much harder, I think, for DC to really get a toehold in the the straight prose book market. Um, even they they got big name authors, um, 
Sarah J. Moss, um, Lee Bardego, uh, who's uh, uh, Marie Lu. These are all New York Times bestselling young adult authors. We're not talking about you know your work for hire uh, veteran authors who nobody really knows their name, but they've worked in every franchise from Star Wars to Star Trek to Animorphs to whatever. Um, these are people who sell books on their name, but unfortunately, because they have their own name to uphold, they're not going to do a series. And I think that's one of the things that um, really kind of holds them back is that a lot of young adults really love series. I mean, and I'm a, an adult and I love series too. And so the idea that we're never going to explore the world further with these authors, so there's never going to be uh, any deepening of the relationships or, or further consequences of the stories we see, I think that does hold it back a little bit. So I think that the the comic idea is a good thing because then you could do like spinoff comics from these adaptations, which I think is uh, a really exciting possibility. So, um, I, and the last note I wanted to say is that uh, Black Canary Ignite has a YouTube trailer which features uh, the song that they sing in the pages um, actually composed. So they actually got a singer and some songwriters and some musicians and recorded the track that you hear Dinah and her friends singing, uh, which reminds me a lot of the EP that they released for the Black Canary uh, DCU title back in the New 52. So uh, that's a really fun marketing thing. I wish they'd actually release the songs um, on iTunes or something so you could actually like uh, buy it and put it on your phone instead of just watching it on YouTube or listening to it on Bandcamp or wherever it was. So, But it is fun seeing DC Marketing take uh, a strong approach to the material that is in the book itself, not just on the cover. So it's, it's part of the world inside the book so you can feel like you're living in that world by listening to the song that you've read before so that's sort of what i'm excited about in terms of what's forthcoming um steph our dc our tbu by the numbers has come out and you're also working on some new stuff so why don't you give us your comments on what the numbers say for the batman universe um i was a little behind on getting numbers out this this month so um they'll Think, think they're already out. <laughs> but uh, September um, looked a little grim. Most books are going down in sales. It's kind of sad. Um, two went up a little bit, but those were cardstock ones. One was Catwoman, again, because as we've guessed, people might just be getting it for the covers. <laughs> See, it was, uh, yeah, almost double the cardstock purchases than the regular comic book purchase. Batman was up a little bit. Percent from the previous month, but again, that was a cardstock month. We had a lot of uh, secondary TBU, TBU books come out. The, the Dollar Comics finally came out last month, and uh, even though the sales numbers were a little low, this is a first month of an experiment, so I'd be very interested to see where these are going to go. Um, yeah, none of them were over 20k, which you know, for a DC book is a little is a little low, but. Um, Again, these are just re-released dollar comics, but I yeah, again, want to want to see where those are going to go. Harleen did really good. Um, Harleen issue number 1 was at 84,000, but again, a number 1 is hard to hard to gauge and judge. Well, that's yeah. good though. I think that Harleen um really deserves it. I think that's uh Yepin Sejic's art and his writing are justly loved for just the kind of detail he puts into both of them. 
And I'm glad to see that he's getting a lot of exposure through this. So hopefully that'll lead to his a, a good career for himself. And also hopefully he'll be coming back to DC so that he keeps, uh, I would say keeps this world going. Cause I think he's got several stories to tell in this Harleen universe. Yeah. I somehow, I don't know how I missed the first book, <laughs> but I was skimming through the second one and I was really struck by the art. I was like, wow, Joker is actually kind of attractive. How did you do this? <laughs> Explain this to me. <laughs> I mean, he's still icky, but, you know, whatever. Um, well, if you're familiar with Cedric's web comics, you know that he uh, likes to explore the more unusual sides of relationships. <laughs> so I think that's sort of what he's going for with the Joker. Uh, and once again, Batman Beyond still around. Sales, sales still going down. <laughs> um, uh, Doomsday Clock still over 100k, 115, almost 116,000, which is good. Hopefully, it'll finish strong, if not slightly disappointing. Um, yeah, nothing too exciting. Just everything's kind of going down. Nothing, nothing super, super fun with that. But my spotlights, uh, the last one that released, I think a couple of weeks ago, was um, have movie sales affected comic sales. And the short of it is not really, but um, when Dark Knight, when the, when the Nolan trilogy started coming out, those were actually fairly novel at the time. Like the first few, I think, first one definitely released before any of the marvel movies did right it was either right before or right around the time that that iron man came out so it was still kind of novel and batman kind of still had the spotlight for for comic book movies so sales actually were pretty decent for for the um especially in trades for the for the batman stuff although the the floppies did pretty good too they were up between 40 and 60 percent in sales Oh no! Just kidding. That was one of them was Superman Returns. So that was definitely before, before the cinematic, the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But ever since then, yeah, yeah. Whenever a movie comes out, sales just kind of meh. Um, trades went up quite yeah went quite quite a bit for the last Dark Knight Rises. But again, after that, it just kind of it doesn't seem like they care too much, except for Suicide Squad, which. <laughs> Uh, floppy sales went up um, 1,285%. But that... That is ridiculous. That Although... Coin- <laughs> it kind of coincided with Rebirth. So it was... And Jim whole- Lee being on art for yes, half yes. an issue. Yeah, and so... So... That really wasn't fair, because I, I, I did see Suicide Squad, and it was fine. I don't think I would have run out to my comic book shop and bought every book on the shelf. I didn't. <laughs> but, Same. I mean, I I know a lot of people hated the Suicide Squad movie. I didn't hate it. I did think it was great, but I had a good time. But yeah. I also didn't subscribe to Suicide Squad after that. Yeah, and and so that and so they actually did do quite a bit of releases that month. I think they had like three or four different Suicide Squad books, like specials, and then. Um, and then Harley had a bunch of her own too, because I think. Oh no, never mind. I don't know what I'm talking about. But um, yeah, let me look real quick. Yeah, between the month before the movie release and the month of the movie release, there was 15 and 16 different floppies released that were either Suicide Squad or Harley Quinn related. 
which is insane. I don't think that's happened since then. <laughs> it did not maintain its its momentum. And again, that was that was the rebirth relaunch, so so stuff was selling like hotcakes. Um and then Well you the could op- also look at um the Dark Knight Rises only took place like five or six months after um, the New 52 started. So that would have been oh, unusual true. sales at the time, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah, that uh, Dark Knight Rises. Well, you know what? But mm, yeah. In fact, sales went down the month that the movie released. So I wonder if, 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 um, do you know what month it released? The I mean, what within the New Fifty Two started? Uh, New Fifty Two started September of twenty eleven. So I think Dark Knight Rises was like it was June, July of two thousand twelve. July of two thousand twelve. And the funny thing about July twenty uh, uh, every year for the next three years, DC would do a September event. So I think the first year was Villains Month. I don't know that for sure, but I know they also did the zero year month. Actually, no, I think the first September was zero year month. And then the next one was villains. And then the year after that was, um, the future's end. It was either future's end or something else, but it was, there's always a September thing. So there's always sort of like a lull before the September, like boost they did. It was a weird rhythm. They decided to build. Well, that must have happened in September or in July because, yeah, sales were actually the worst from the previous months and the months after <laughs> during Dark Knight Rises. But but the trades trade sales went up quite, quite a bit. Um, yeah. And then in the upcoming spotlight, I had way too much fun with this one. I uh, compare comic prices, and I focus mainly on DC, although it wasn't the average sale price wasn't that much different than Marvel. Um, and for comics in general, but uh, the changes in comic book prices adjusted for inflation. And the most interesting I saw was, give or take, you know, however much sense, the price of a comic book actually did not change in the first 50 years. Like, when it started as 10 cents up until it got to be a dollar, if you adjust for inflation, there actually was n- pretty much no change in cost for a comic. And then and then and then things got crazy because sales kind of went in the dumps. I think that must have been what the dawn of the internet or something and people didn't care about comics anymore because sales uh, yeah, there's actually a pretty good correlation between drastic increase in cost of comics or price of comics to to readership so it'll be it'll be pretty interesting i should have that posted in the next few days um yeah that sounds truly fascinating and as someone who is really frustrated with the price of comics nowadays um i i look forward to reading that and we'll definitely talk about that next episode Oh, and I found out so many things like about the history of comics and like one thing that caused the comic sales to dip in, I think it was the 
70s? Maybe it was the 60s. Comics Code Authority was established because comics were being blamed for all of America's social problems and like crime and like rebellious youth. And so comics, it sounds like from what I read, were pretty much solely blamed for all of that. And so sales kind of tanked a little bit. Um, well, and here's here's a thing that people was. don't talk about a lot with the Comics Code, which is um, there was this man, Frederick Wortham, who published a book called Seduction of the Innocent, which did do that. And I think he testified before Congress about this. However, DC and Marvel got on board with this because they wanted to drive their rivals who published primarily crime and adult romance type comics and oh. horror comics out of business <gasps> so they could have their family-friendly superheroes take over the market. That unfortunately had the effect of narrowing the genre overall and uh, leaving only two publishers on the top. Mm. Evil businessmen. But still, like, as an industry, comics, comics kind of, yeah, tanked because of that. Um, so it took a little bit of rebuilding. And then, and then, what is it? Yeah, in the 90s, it looks like it in the 80s and 90s. In fact, I found a whole bunch of, like, websites that were talking about how there, in the 80s there was this horrible drop in sales, but, like, no no one mentions any kind of numbers. But it's, like, this well-known fact that, that sales went down. It was really, really bad, but no one could actually tell me what the numbers were. <laughs> I'd have to actually go out and buy a book, I think, if I wanted to find those numbers, which that's not well, going to happen. <laughs> and uh, the thing about the the book publishing industry and the magazine publishing industry is they did keep great records. And... A lot of the the numbers that we do have are poorly understood. So in the 90s, when you have like a million sales of X-Men number one, do you know how many of those were actually bought by some people and how many were returned and pulped? It was pretty horrendous. We're talking at least 50% of the million were pulped. Now, it's still 500,000 that are getting bought, but it's not super profitable to have a 50% return rate, you know? The only, and I'll just say one more thing, the only thing I could find about sales in the 80s is I did find one tweet from like six years ago mentioning they had taken a picture from like a magazine or something of the average number of each books sold in February in every comic book store, which didn't help me because one, it was just one month and I was doing yearly sales, and two, it was the average sold per store. So without knowing how many stores were selling comics, in that year, <laughs> I couldn't calculate any kind of numbers. So I was like, oh, good, a completely useless piece of information. It's lovely. Anyway, I, got, I, I, I was up late doing research. I was a little too obsessed with this. But, yes, that article should be released hopefully pretty soon. And it will be excellent. Oh, it was so interesting. So much more interesting than my, oh, movie sales don't actually affect sales article. That one disappointed me. I was like, oh, everyone was right. Well, I actually would disagree. I found it somewhat informative. I mean, the general trend, I think, was right. But I think that you trace um, historical facts like the the way the the quality of the movies and the reputation of the movies actually does sort of even the minor impact the movies have is impacted by the quality or at least the perceived quality of the movies. So the Batman and Robin and Batman Forever movies have much less of an impact than the Christopher Nolan movies. That's true. That's true. So I and thought that actually, was interesting. Shazam trades did go up almost 200%, but that's a percent of like a pretty small number. But I guess when no one was reading Shazam before, now twice as many people are reading Shazam. That is still pretty cool. And, and something I think pretty good. 
something I think people don't really appreciate is that the reading public, or at least the buying public, is tiny. New York Times bestsellers are selling ten, tens of thousands of copies. That's less than Batman sells, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. 80,000 to 100,000. Books don't sell a lot. <laughs> it's just kind of the way it is. So with that, let's move on to our comic reviews. We're going to do both of our Detective Comics reviews and then move on to Batman. Steph, take it away. Okay, so this is stolen from Jamie Dawn, who wrote the synopsis for uh, Detective Comics on our website. We begin with a brutal interrogation. Batman questions a bloodied criminal, asking who sent them to kidnap the woman from the prior issue. As the camera pans out, we see that this is a far from the first to be questioned. There is another beaten criminal lying in an alley. The criminal in Batman's arms mentions that he's been beaten beyond recognition. Batman brings the criminal to the roof, stating that it wasn't the beating. (laughs) I forgot about that part. Sorry. Batman brings the criminal to the roof, stating it wasn't the beating that killed the man. It was the fall. As Batman threatens to drop the criminal, he gives the name Freeze. Batman has gotten what he needs as the beaten criminal stands, Alfred in disguise the entire time. They blast off to the Batcave to prepare for Freeze. Elsewhere, at Gotham Pine Barrens, Freeze speaks to his cryogenic love as he disposes of bodies that have met their end. He is prepared to move forward with his plans at any cost. Interrupting, Batman blazes through the wall, adorned in a new suit of armor equipped with flamethrowers. Freeze flicks his finger, and with the flick, it is revealed that the bodies have become unwitting pawns, zombies that Freeze uses against Batman. Freeze escapes as Batman is left to fight the Horde, stating that he has all the data he needs to initiate his plan. Using his deductive skills, Batman discovers that a shared control panel must be what's used to manipulate the bodies. Taking it out, they become unresponsive, and Batman sets off after Freeze. Batman uses a Batskims mobile to Give chase, catching up to Freeze. He leaps onto the vehicle, but Freeze has prepared a contingency. He flips a switch that electrocutes Batman, sending Batman careening off the vehicle. Falling into the frigid water, Batman quickly accumulates ice around his new suit. As Freeze thinks he's disposed of Batman, we see that Batman can ignite his suit, thawing himself. Now free, he asks Alfred for a larger vehicle. Back in the Batcave, Batman and Alfred are shown using technology to help defrost Freeze's victims. In a parallel scene, we see Freeze finally getting that which he desires, thawing Nora. As she comes to consciousness, she screams, Victor, don't! And then on to issue 1014. This issue opens with a newly awakened Nora Freeze, 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 arguing that with her husband, Victor Freeze, she feels betrayed, telling Victor that she never wanted to be frozen. Nora wished to battle over her cancer on her own terms. Yet, Victor made the decision to incarcerate her in ice against her will. You wanted to do battle against a foe that couldn't be defeated, Victor says. You were braver than I was, darling. I was not prepared to lose the love of my life, while you were prepared to risk it all. An alarm for the temperature drop to absolute zero blares in the background as they continue to argue. Nora, her body encased in a containment suit, struggles to free herself. Victor tries to calm her. It's for her own safety, he tells her. Nora doesn't care, and she rips the containment suit helmet off as the countdown reaches one second left. 
Her skin is ice cold. When she touches Victor, she notes how cold he is, too. Mr. Freeze tells Nora that he once had to wear a suit like hers, but now he is able to come and go as he pleases in whatever temperature exists inside or out. They kiss. Then Nora pushes Victor away, telling him that everything is moving too fast. She needs time to process everything she's been through. Victor then recounts the steps he has made while she has been frozen, noting that his life has been living hell for so long without her. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne is at Wayne Tech, pulling 24-hour shifts with Lucius Fox to figure out what Freeze, what Freeze has done to his test subjects. An alarm blares for a breach in the cryonic lab as Mr. and Mrs. Freeze break in, searching for a special compound Victor made tucked away when he was employed here. Bruce and Nora recognize each other, and Nora notes how much of a gentleman she remembers Bruce as being. She recounts how he was such a big supporter of the ballet, her passionate in the past life. Victor hijacks the conversation, recounting how Mr. Wayne halted the cryogenic research. The husband and wife team recovers the compound they came for and leave. Later, Nora Freese perf- performs ballet on a stage before her husband. Now, her once pale skin is blue like his. She no longer needs the containment suit. After the dance, the two don matching outfits and goggles and unveil themselves to Gotham as the new Mr. and Mrs. Freeze. The symbol of doom canvases the night sky as the two make their grand debut onto the unsuspecting city. Bum, bum, bum. So, these were finally getting into the meat of the Victor Freeze arc. I always say his normal last name is Freeze, just because that's what his uh, his nom de plume sounds like too. I I confess, I watched Gotham, and they 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 were like, "Excuse me, can you just settle an argument? How do you pronounce your last name?" And he's like, "It's, it's Freeze." <laughs> But taking Gotham's word for anything <laughs> is, uh, let's just say I wouldn't <laughs> and leave it there. Well, if we're going uh, by the German, which he seems always seems a little Germish to me, it would be Fleece. So it'd be neither, really. Well, we do have the Von Fries story coming up from the White Knight ah, universe, yes. which I'm pretty excited about. So that's leaning heavily into the German element. But back to Detective. <laughs> Yes, back to Detective. <laughs> Perhaps you can tell how engaged we are in this story. <laughs> I I kind of want to ask the same question I asked last time, which is, do you think that this story is going to signal a change for Mr. Freeze? Because, you know, his, his story is so um, static, and as you said, has very little to do with Batman. Do you think that Tomasi is trying to connect him more strongly with Batman, maybe by having Batman have to, you know, refreeze his wife or tear them apart or uh, even somehow be responsible for his wife's death. Do you think that we're going to look at some kind of major status quo change to tie Mr. Freeze more closely to Batman? Well, it depends if they want to keep the, and this is more overarching of all the books right now is do they want to keep the changes they're making to the criminals given the, uh, oh, what's it called? Year of the Villain. Um, because I think some of those changes are not necessarily overdue, but it does throw, you know, an interesting wrench into their stories and, and opens the doors for new types of stories to be told. So I haven't actually finished the Joker one yet, Year, Year of the Villain Joker. In fact, I, I read the first page. 
<laughs> but so that one still needs to be read. But of all the stories I have read, there's some pretty fundamental changes. And if you're going to change Freeze's 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 Doctor Freeze, Mister Freeze, Mister Freeze's complete and total reason for being, which is to save his wife, he is going to become a brand new character. So I would be interested in that. And like, yeah, like you said, he's he's been static for however many years that he's been this character because as long as Nora is still frozen, he's still the same guy with the same motivation, with the same actions. He's not going to change. So now that this has changed, who is he? And so I think one thing I got from the end of this is he and Nora are fairly well matched. Like I was always wondering, like what kind of woman would marry a man who could do this? And it's like, oh, a woman who would also do that. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So maybe they were both just criminally awful, horrible people from the beginning <laughs> and just didn't have an opportunity to become criminals. And now that they have the opportunity, they're like, oh, yeah, let's totally do this. I think I think they would be cute as the husband and wife freezing-themed criminals that just like to steal things or wreak havoc or whatever. Icy Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, yes, Bonnie and Clyde with ice. So that actually answers my second question, which was, does Nora's acceptance of Freeze's life of crime strike you as plausible or sympathetic? And it sounds like yes, because it makes sense on a romantic level that if this is the man Freeze became, he wasn't a completely different person before, and Nora must have fallen in love with that because of similarities in her own values and characters. So that that's a good uh, segue. Uh, the only other comment I really had, and sort of a question is, the cover for 1014 seems a little anatomically implausible and strange in terms of Nora's anatomy and how the particular type of sexiness she's drawn. Did that sort of strike you as a little odd, or does it just seem normal I to you? I think all the tech covers have been stupid forever. Like... They have had either nothing to do with what's going on or they were completely misleading. I I, I just like that there's no speech bubbles on it. <laughs> um, yes, her proportions. That is 100% true. I am tired of the speech bubbles. <laughs> her thing. proportions are ridiculous. But like, uh, I, I, was this the one that I don't think this is the one that that Dustin was talking about a few weeks ago where where it was like a, a swamp monster type hold of of the woman coming the monster holding the the bridal style you know scantily clad woman maybe it was this one i don't know but i think it gives off a, a horror movie vibe which is fine if if we're just resigned to the fact that the the covers have nothing to do with anything sure go ahead uh mr freeze wearing some kind of tattered bat outfit holding a pinup version of his wife. Sure. Great. That's that's exactly what that is. <laughs> it's beautiful. That's very much what it is and I I just feel like it's not a terribly it, it doesn't draw me in. And I'll admit I'm not super engaged with this story. Um but the cover isn't selling me on it the way that <laughs> other covers have. I'm I don't know if i'm unengaged like i've always like this is definitely answering a question for me which was like what i said like 
who was Nora that she married this guy? And like, what are Freeze's motivations? Is it to be with her or is it to save her? And both those questions I asked last time were answered, which is, no, his motivation is not just to save her. He he desperately wants to be with her. And she is also appears to be a horrible person and is fine with everything he's done. It's like when she woke up, she had to have seen like all those bodies. It's like, you know, he's done some really horrible things and she's fine with it. So... I kind of hope that they don't backtrack on this and have her suddenly be, oh, my goodness, you killed all these women for me. I can't. That would be really lame. I'd prefer if they just had her double down and be, yeah, this is my husband. I'm going to be a criminal, too. What are you going to do about it, Batman? And then he punches them both. (laughs) I I don't say I would. I wouldn't say I'd I'd love that, but I think that would definitely make way more sense and just be a little more satisfying, I think, just knowing that, oh, yeah. She's a horrible person. I, I feel it. like if she turned out to, to be horrified at her husband's crimes, it would just be more cliched. And yeah. the other way would be more interesting. I think so. It's, it's, a, it's a twist, but I like it. All right. So let's give our ratings. For um, Detective Comics 1013, I would give that a 3 out of 5. Um, yeah, 3. 3. I guess 3. 3. Yeah. 3 is good. Um, were you confused by Alfred's disguise? The flash mask? Yes. Because I actually didn't catch on that that was Alfred at first. And so I was just so confused why this really ugly flash in a suit was suddenly in the Batcave. I don't know. I I didn't really have difficulty telling who it was. Uh. Um, I did think it wasn't particularly appealing, but I suppose that was the point. Everyone can't have a a cool look out of a uh, costume. <laughs> I just feel like Batman should have, you know, an elegant silk black mask for Alfred. <laughs> you know, Alfred's such a dapper character. I think he deserves a better mask. <laughs> anyway, that was the only, that was the only thing that really kind of threw me on that one was that really ugly mask at the end. <laughs> and on the website, Jamie gave detective 1013, uh, three and a half out of five, which gives, uh, 1013 a total of three out of five um for 1014 i would give this a three and a half out of five what about you that's what i was thinking like it's it's definitely a step up it answers a lot of questions it's definitely not a four so three and a half i think is very fair agreed i think that's a, a good rating and um scott our new reviewer for detective gave it a three and a half as well so the total rating for Detective Comics 1014 is three and a half out of five. Let's move on to Batman number 81. Written by Tom King, art by John Romita Jr., inks by Klaus Johnson, and colors by Tomu More. The issue opens in the Batcave, with Thomas Wayne holding a gun to the head of a tied-up Damian Wayne. Thomas says that he can't shoot because they are family, as Damian breaks free and tells Thomas they aren't family, and who his family really is. Flashpoint Batman finds himself surrounded by Batwoman, Orphan, Signal, Batgirl, Huntress, and Tim Drake's Robin. Meanwhile, Batman and Catwoman take on Amygdala and Solomon Grundy outside the gates of Arkham, as voiceover Batman explains to Catwoman how, after finding Arkham empty, he sent the Bat family a message through his punch to Tim Drake's jaw in Batman 71. 
This message was that the Bat family should go dark while he walked into Bane's trap at Wayne Manor, knowing that he would be defeated by Bane so he could then find a way to defeat Bane without his family also being taken down. Back in the cave, the Bat family lays a stern beat down on Thomas, apparently for what happened to Alfred while Batman and Catwoman walk through the halls of Arkham. Batman's voiceover continues, explaining that after he was defeated in the pit, he left Gotham to find a way to defeat Bane. Batman continues that he discovered Gotham Girl's powers were the result of a high-powered version of the Venom, which led him to the discovery of Bane's involvement, and how he destroyed most of this super-venom except a final dose that was kept in the care of Batman's old mentor, the Memory of the Mountain, referenced in Batman Annual number 2. In the cave, Huntress stands over a, a bloody Thomas, pointing her crossbow at him, offering to put an arrow in his spine, as Tim states that it was not his way and they should offer mercy. Thomas pulls himself to his feet, speaking to himself about what is wrong with his boy Bruce for him to have an army of children fighting for him. Huntress shoots an arrow, yelling, For Alfred! which Thomas catches and plunges into Tim's chest. Back in Arkham, the Joker and Riddler walk into the asylum, as Batman's voiceover explains that he left a caretaker to watch over Gotham to make sure that the very worst did not happen. The Joker punches out the Riddler, then reveals himself to be Clayface in disguise, still on Batman's side since James Tynan's run of Detective Comics. Underneath Wayne Manor, a series of quick, close panels cut between the grandfather clock and below, as Thomas assaults the entire Bat family by himself, eventually defeating them. Batman and Catwoman make their way through Arkham, with the captions explaining that when he made his way to the memory of the mountain, he found his mentor murdered and the venom stolen by Magpie. He himself was... his throat was cut and beaten severely by Magpie's thugs she left behind. Selina found him and nursed him back to health, and he realized he doesn't have to fight Bane alone, and that his enemies would assume that he hadn't learned this lesson and would continue to try to fight Bane by himself. As the story cuts to a splash page of Bane, Batman's voiceover explains he reached out to the family, and Alfred told him that he was uh, safe, so he sent Damien to offer himself up as a hostage instead, as well as disable Gotham Girl through magic. Um, Damien, once he was captured, would let in the rest of the family and take back the Batcave, while Batman and Catwoman take on Bane. The grandfather clock splinters open as Thomas drags his beaten and bloody self, as well as the members of the Bat family left on the floor, ordering the ventriloquist, his new butler, to bring him a cup of tea. Thomas explains to Arnold Wesker that he used the Bat family's devices to send word to his son that Bruce's plan had worked even though it had failed. In the epilogue, the captured and naked Harvey Bullock breaks free of his bonds in the former Gotham City Police headquarters, singing a song about how terrible Gotham City is as he dances in the rainy night. The Legion of Doom's signal flares in the distance. So, 
we have the end of this sort of two-part arc of Batman assaults, uh, Batman's initial assault on the city of Bane. What do you think about um, how Batman explains his plan? Especially, there was a lot of commentary about how Batman punched him, and that's so bad. So bad. To me, I actually didn't ever have a problem with Batman punching Tim because it was clearly shown to be wrong. It was shown to be Batman pushed to his lowest endurance and he he snapped and did a wrong thing. Whereas a lot of people said, oh, this is Tom King sort of showing that Batman's relationship with his children is abusive and it's sort of normalizing abuse and the abuse is supposed to be seen as positive. And that, that really never made sense to me because the context didn't support that it was it was clearly an act of batman at his lowest um here it's revealed that tom king actually had batman relay a message to tim and the rest of the family through that fight sort of like a sparring move that you would never normally do in a fight and instead it's communication to let the bat family know what to do next what do you think about the initial controversy of batman hitting tim and now this new information about batman sending a message through the punch well, I mean, we say, you know, it's the internet, but it's not. It's it's humans. Digi- digital digital doesn't have feelings. Digital doesn't get upset. It's it's us humans. And so I I feel like people get a little too upset about things. I think that judging Tom King's motivations is always wrong because it's like he's going to show you either in a tweet <laughs> Or in the comic book later. Like, calm down. Hold. Hold your horses. It's going to be okay. I actually thought the final reveal was a little more stupid. (laughs) I don't know. I thought that was a little out there. Like, I guess that's something he would do, I suppose. But that's just, I mean, you couldn't have slipped them a note. Or, <laughs> yeah, or like, I mean, they were alone. Like you couldn't have just, hi guys, go dark for a little bit. I don't know. It seemed a little unnecessary. Well, there's also a really weird obsession that a lot of writers have with trying to take that famous panel from I think the '60s where yes. Batman slaps Robin. I've seen. Um, I'm, I meant to do a little like montage, but I think there's been at least three three books in the last twelve months where that's been done. Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that, you know, Bruce Wayne murderer, you had Batman punching Nightwing because Nightwing was trying to persuade Bruce to deny that he killed someone that he didn't kill. It was, that was one of the least successful ones, in my opinion, even though I do like Bruce Wayne murderer. And then you had um, Scott Snyder's famous Batman punches Nightwing to get rid of his tooth, which is secretly a Court of Owls device, (laughs) which I still think is like, you couldn't have told dick to get the dentist chair and taking it out with anesthesia Um, it's definitely a shock value thing absolutely but it's a shock value specifically appealing to the history of batman and robin so i if i were purely trying to take this as like a documentary of something that actually happened i would say yeah it's a little implausible but this is batman uh, Batman can read language, body language and read lips and speak multiple languages. Why, why shouldn't he have developed a code through punches? I 
fucking um, punching Cassandra would have made more sense than than punching right. Tim. <laughs> but you I can't agree. hit a girl. <laughs> well, it's it's not that he can't hit a girl. It's that the iconic panel is Batman hitting Robin. Ugh. Um, I I was a little more disappointed with the final reveal than I was upset by the original happening. I think that's a good point. I wasn't particularly disappointed, but I, as I said, I didn't have a problem with the original because I saw what I thought he was trying to do with the reference to the original panel and the idea that Batman has been brought low. I mean, the whole point of the last, you know, 25 issues was that Batman was broken. Bane broke him emotionally. So him being broken, he would do broken bad stuff like hit his kids um i almost yeah like you said i i I like it a little better thinking that he's losing it and this whole fact that he seemed to have it a little more together the whole time than we were led to believe i don't know i just think that's a little disappointing (laughs) i like my superheroes broken and sad maybe (laughs) i don't know i i feel like tom king has still made batman very broken and sad i don't think there's a shortage of sad broken batman in this run (laughs) uh let's let's see see. um so there was a cop there's a lot of uh as you say people on the internet arguing about how easily um thomas beats the bat family uh, to which I, I just thought of this today as I was writing the show notes. Batman, we talked about last issue, beats a ton of villains last issue super easily. He just sort of takes them down one after another. Um, and you could make the, I know people can make this argument because I've seen them. You know, Batman, uh, Flashpoint Batman is less good at combat. The only reason he's good is because he uses guns and he kills people. And the Bat family are way better than the villains. And the Bat family were working together. So how in the world could Flashpoint Batman beat them all? What's your take on that? Well, did you, you didn't really read too much of um, Injustice, did you? No, I've only read maybe 20 issues. So after being stuck in the, whatever it is, the danger zone, phantom zone, phantom zone, um, Tim and the Teen Titans, or the Titans, finally get out of the Phantom Zone. And Tim is immediately shot in the heart. And pretty much dies immediately. It's so sad. <laughs> anyway. You are not making a strong case for me to read Injustice. I just want to say. Awesome. It's so sad. <clears throat> Sorry. Sorry, Rob. Um, anyway. So when I saw poor Tim getting... <laughs> stabbed in the chest with this arrow i was like oh no not again and i can see the bat family being a little taken aback like i know that they're supposed to be on point and and handling anything but i think that that would really freak them out and maybe take them by surprise um i mean it's true i mean this older gentleman is is losing buckets of blood mostly through his face so yes i think it is a little odd that they would he took them all down um but at the same time he did kind of just shock their systems i think um but it is it is strange and I'd, i'm not 100 percent on board of this older gun-toting bleeding guy took out what was it how many were there like five at young, least six yeah six six athletic trained to fight people it is a little odd i 
didn't really have a problem with it because to me, Flashpoint Batman is still Batman. And I don't really care that he's supposed to be, you know, less good than Bruce. He's still Batman. And the point of this story is the parallel between Thomas and Bruce, the father and son. They're both Batman. They've chosen a different way. And Tom King is trying to make a statement about which one is better. And for that to mean anything, I think if Thomas Wayne were just taken down super easily, it wouldn't be a challenge. It wouldn't be difficult. And it wouldn't mean very much if Bruce was able to easily defeat his father uh, and his family was able to easily defeat his father. That just means that the threats we face symbolically are, are weak. But we know that's not true. We know that the, the threats we face in real life are really hard, whether they're moral or physical or emotional. These things that we face that I think Batman comics sort of symbolize and recontextualize for us to have an entertainment, but also to inspire us. It's not inspiring to be able to go over a three foot hill. It's inspiring to go over a mountain. So to me, Flashpoint Batman has to be a major threat. And you could you could. I suppose, argue that, well, if Tom King wanted to make him a major threat, he should have picked a different Batman villain. <laughs> Thomas is the parallel. Like, this this is all extremely thematic, and I think it makes a lot of sense if you let go of this sort of, you have to have every fight be a mathematical equation where if this character has beaten this character, they can obviously beat the character that the character has beaten has beaten. That's not how fights work. If you... I don't watch boxing, but I know... That just because, you know, the champion is the champion one year doesn't mean he's going to be the champion next year. And it doesn't mean he can beat everyone. It just means he happened to beat all the people he needed to beat that year to be the champion. And I think this speaks out. I mean, you know, how many times has Batman fought someone and been bloody and broken and death on the floor? But because he has the strong will or maybe because he's Batman, you know, he gets back up. And this is his father. This is who he's learned it from. Like, I think if you're, if, yeah, if you're going for symbolism, if you're going for parallels, then then it would make sense that despite it all, that his dad could get back up. Um, well said. <laughs> like, that's why I thought that the, the part where the Batman, both Batman were in the pit and one of them climbs out. That's why I kept saying it's both of them because no, they're both Batman. It's literally not. <laughs> You're still but it wrong. is. No, they're they're both coming out. I'm telling you. But uh, but the one thing that disappoints me about that whole thing, not the pit, this this issue in particular, is is I wanted to see the Bat family come and save the day and prove that Bruce is stronger with his family, and so hopefully they'll come back re-energized and a little patched up but i would that that's actually what disappointed me more than anything was that i wanted to see the bat family kick butt and take names and instead they got arrowed <laughs> i do agree i i would like the message of batman to be that he is stronger with his family but obviously tom king wanted to tell sort of a more complicated story i, I think that's a kind of a simple story um not a bad story by any means, but simple. And I think a hundred, well, 85 issue long story needs to be a bit more in depth. And I think that's what we're going for here. So I agree with you. It would have been nice to see the Bat Family save the day, even though <clears throat> Stephanie Brown wasn't there. <laughs> um, but 
I still think it was. Maybe that's why. That's why they lost. <laughs> if they just had spoiler, they would have won. Spoiler. That's the real story here. Okay. So, last question. Um, what do you think of John Romita Jr.'s art? It was very controversial. Um, a I lot of people it. really hated it. Hated you, you were also. <laughs> I hated it. I was on the fence for the last issue because the rain falling kind of justified it, but this time I just really focused on like their their jaws and there was a lot of there was a, more women in this issue than the last one and ugh they were so ugly. <laughs> I just really don't like the way he draws the mouths and the jaws. They all have huge underbites. It's ugh. He does the monsters really well. But no, I just was not a fan. Interesting. Well, I'm glad we have this because I like the art a lot. I wouldn't say I loved it, and I wouldn't say I want a whole run of it, but I I found this a really fun contrast to what was before and what's after, and it just sort of gives a flavor to the Batman universe that I appreciate, even if it's not something I want all the time. Um, I just want to point out that I called Basil coming back. He wasn't you the were who I thought he was. Absolutely right. I thought he was thought he was Alfred, and somehow Alfred's okay. I still don't accept that, but somehow Alfred's okay. But I totally called Basil coming back, and I was I was a little wind in my sails, and I was like, "Ooh, there he is! I was right." <laughs> that that is something I never would have called because Tom King's been so independent of most of the other Bat titles. But this, I think that it's really uh, respectful of him to take James Tynan's work with Clayface and mm-hmm. and honor that and make it a part of his story. I thought that was really cool. Um, and I, I kind of hope that James Tynan uh, uses Clayface again in his upcoming Batman run because I really like the way he wrote him. Yeah, me too. Oh, and I loved the the epilogue. Like, yeah. Oh, and that art, by the way, was by Mitch Geratz, who yes. is a frequent collaborator with Tom King, and it was very nice. He's really good at drawing the sort of grimy, pain-filled sort of sequences that Tom King loves to write so much. And those last few panels are just very, very haunting and very like disturbing, and but in an artistic kind of way, where it makes you interested in what's going on. I, I, I definitely liked. I liked the last five panels more than the art in the rest of the book <sighs> unfortunately all right so let's give our ratings i think i would give this a three and a half out of five yeah yeah three and a half it explained a lot answered a lot of questions but i just really dislike the art and over on the website paul gave this a three and a half out of five as well which gives the overall rating three and a half out of five batarangs Moving on, we're going to hit the Batman Annual number four. Written by Tom King. Art by Jorge Fornes, with additional art by Mike Norton. Colors by the masterful Dave Stewart. The story is narrated by Alfred in journal entries that opens with a page of Batman chasing a criminal, both on horseback over the steeple-tops of Gotham. Batman managed to tackle the criminal off his steed and throws a couple of bat ropes to stop the runaway horses from running off the edge of the buildings. The next night, Batman slays a dragon, only to have another dragon burst from the corpse of that dragon. Batman proceeds to decapitate that dragon, and another dragon emerges from the corpse of that dragon, which Batman again defeats. 
the next night, Batman accepts the challenge of a mixed martial arts champion to a charity match. As the two square off in the octagon, Alfred's narration explains that Batman had ignored the fighter's challenges and boasts until he began bragging about being untouchable following the beating of his girlfriend. Batman knocks the fighter out cold in the ring. The next night, Batman stands in a study over a murdered billionaire and proceeds to interrogate six suspects. A maid, a wife, a son, a daughter, and a friend. After going over their stories in the quiet of the Batcave, Batman determines that the billionaire's son was the murderer uh, because of a small detail or clue. The next night, Bruce Wayne meets with a high school girlfriend for a drink, and Alfred explains she was his first kiss before he left to travel the world in his training to become Batman. She comforted him as he confessed to her his plans to travel. In the present, the woman is comforted by Bruce as she confesses to having committed a killing. The next night, Batman lays on train tracks as a train where a buyer is supposed to meet a man selling missile defense codes speeds towards him. He grabs onto the bottom of the train, proceeds to knock out the buyer, and intercept the deal. The next night, Batman finds himself on an extra-dimensional plane where a powerful being asks Batman why he and the human race should exist. Batman answers that the being's threats will fail because while they are being judged, he is Batman and will fight to defeat him. Batman finds himself transported back to the Batcave, and while drinking his tea, asks Alfred, what's next? The days continue to unfold the Batman's adventures, um, including zombies, monsters, sharks, death machines, supercharged cars, mass murderers, joker toxins, alligators, vampires, helping a wandering elderly woman cross the street, going to space, facing off against the Joker, uh, and his son Tim returning home for a hug. The issue ends with the title, Every Day. So, this was something Tom King said was his sort of statement about who Batman is. Do you think he accomplished it? Does this feel connected thematically to the rest of Tom King's run to you? Hmm. You first. So I'm going to say yes. Um, If you look back at the famous rooftops issue where Batman and Selina sort of reconnect for the first time after their adventure on Santa Prisca, there's a very excellent sequence where Batman fights a bunch of small and large criminals in a sequence of repeating panels um, as Selina watches. And you just get the sense that this is Batman's life every night. He beats people who want to hurt innocents. Every night, he goes out and stops crime, um, as the famous Tim Sale black and white comic. (laughs) Joker says, you're insane. You think you can stop crime? Batman says, I do stop crime every night. And I think that's the perspective. And you see him say the same thing to the vision of his mother at the end of I Am Bane, where he says, I didn't have a plan. Uh, to stop all crime through supporting Gotham and Gotham Girl. I didn't have um, this symbolic need to avenge my mother's death. I just saw that Gotham Girl needed help, and I could help her, so I did. 
that's Batman. And that's why you have things like Batman fighting a dragon contrasted with Batman helping a lady across the street and Batman hugging Tim when he comes home on his the anniversary of his father's death, which, interestingly, is a reference to Identity Crisis, which apparently has parts of it back in continuity again. Um, this is about Batman taking the opportunity to help people every day. It, it's, it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be small. It can be scary. It can be normal. It can be mundane. But it is always Batman's mission to help people. And that, to me, is what Tom King is saying. It's what he was saying in the wedding with the letter from Selina that he's an engine that turns pain into hope. It's uh, what he said in Nightmares, where Batman is exploring what his vow means. Can he be happy while still making his mission to help everyone he meets? I found it very moving and emotional. <laughs> I would definitely agree in that in that sense. Um, that, yeah, this is... I, I don't imagine there would be any time that Batman is faced with any of these things and he would he would turn away, like... And seeing him in all these different types of situations, it was kind of cool, the variety of stuff that there was. Like, just kind of bizarre crimes by normal people to the absolute fantastical. I love dragons, by the way. Seeing Batman fight dragons was fabulous. Um, And Jorge Fornes just knocked the art out of the park. Like, those dragons were gorgeous and gory, and Batman killing them was just epic fantasy. It was so good. I, I'd say the only one that actually kind of bothers me, and I reread it. I, it just sounds like Bruce was just hanging out in this crappy bar, and he met his 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 high school girlfriend. Like, I don't understand why he was there, and that's what bothered me the most. Was why well, I think that he knew that she had committed the crime, and so he was hoping he oh. could convince her to turn herself in so that she could get help. I getcha. Okay, because for me that was like, why is Bruce Wayne here? <laughs> That's an awfully big coincidence, but that would make more sense. Um, but yeah, I think it does. It does hold it with with who, and obviously, I mean, it should if it's written by Tom King. That that this is Tom King's Batman and what he does. And I'll tell you, the only thing that really kind of bothered me about this whole thing is that it's it was every day something huge was happening, and I'm just thinking, you know, if I lived in Gotham, and this was literally my daily life, I would move like. I just don't see the big horrible things happening every day. And I guess they don't sometimes see, like you said. Well, and honestly, the thing is, like, the dragon is huge. But, yeah. like, the train thing, that, that doesn't affect that many people. True, I mean, I he stops it. But then there's, and the, even there's the, the snow, and then there's the giant monster, and then there's the dinosaurs. <laughs> I don't know. It just, it's a lot of big things to happen in one city, like... I'm just thinking I, of like the. I agree, but this is the sort of pulp universe of Batman where stuff just happens, you know. That's true. Um, I think too much. One like thing I now. did. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I was just saying I think too much like an adult now. So I'm just thinking, you know, the house insurance must be crazy. In Gotham. Well, <laughs> I mean, there market. that was a plot yeah. point in uh, in Batman White Knight. So. It was. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is that when the art switches from Jorge Fornes, which is a much more fluid and really 
uh, loose and, and very creative style. Tom King does one of my favorite tricks that he's done quite a bit. He did it in Vision and he did it in uh, Omega Men, which is that he starts with a splash panel of Batman fighting something really weird. And then he goes to a, pan- a page that's split in half. And then he goes to a page that's split into three. And then he has quarters. And then there's five panels stacked on top of each other. And then a six-panel grid. Then seven panels. Then an eight-panel grid. And it ends on a nine-panel grid. And that very disciplined structuring of the story gives us the sense of sort of the camera pulling out. And you just see the tapestry of Batman's life as it unfolds into a pattern, a habit of doing good, a habit of helping other people, the big and the small. And it's just every day. And he does it. I think there is something of a weakness. Um, you could, you could definitely make an argument that this could have been an eight page story instead of a 40 page story. I like all the stuff, all the little details, the mini stories he, he put in here, but it, it is a story. Um, I don't know if I would put this necessarily as the greatest issue of Tom King's run. I know a lot of people really like it, and I'm glad. I, I think this is a an issue that if more of Tom King's run was like this, he probably wouldn't have such a polarizing response because it is the kind of thing that bat, that Tom, people like Batman for. People like Batman kicking butt. They like Batman in funny situations, like Batman in little situations and big situations. They like him and his relationship with Alfred. I think this was really good, but... My next question is, how would you compare this to the other three annuals? So the first annual was an anthology, and I really want to point that out for the um, the good boy story, which is his eight-page story of the origin of Ace the Bat Hound, which won an Eisner for him and David Finch. The second annual is very famous. It was Lee Weeks and Michael Lark doing the art, and he wrote the story of Batman's first kiss with Catwoman and then his death um, in a possible future. And then... There was the third annual by Tom Taylor, which was a Batman Alfred story, which is very sweet, but is not a Tom King story. So I'm not quite sure if I count it, but it was released as part of the run. And then, of course, there's this one, which is every day. So where would you put this in the list of Batman annuals for Rebirth? Gosh, what were the other stories in the anthology? I'm having... Well, there was the Scott Snyder, the Dancers in the Snow. There was that weird Steve Orlando one about the villain who turned out to be part of the Spirit Batman crossover. There was, uh, I don't even remember. I didn't really like most of the annual that wasn't the good boy story, so I don't care that much. So even though that, you know, one Eisner, I have a hard time putting that even in the top two just because I just don't remember the rest of it. So as an issue as a whole, you know, you can't give it super high props. Um, so I, I might put this as the second one because obviously I am assuming that the Catwoman one is the first one. Obviously, that one was wonderful. I made my husband read it. and He's like, that was so sad. I was like, yeah, I know. Isn't it great? And, um, and I really did like the one with 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 Alfred. But I think that one. I'd like my annuals to be a little disconjointed and be more of a back a, a character study rather than like one full story, I think. And that's just a preference. So that's why that's the only reason I would put this one above above the Alfred one and then the anthology on the bottom, the first one on the bottom. What about you? 
So I would also put number two at the top. I think I'd actually put Good Boy next as number two. And this one would be third, and the Tom Taylor one would be fourth. Um, just because I think the Tom Taylor one, while good, is... It, it had a couple things that sort of drag me away and it and it just wasn't part of the overall run so i was frustrated with dc for releasing it as part of the batman line instead of maybe detective comics or as a secret file i think that the good boy story is really masterful i i reread it when i got it signed at comic-con this year and i was just really struck with how much emotion and humor uh, tom king really snuck into that story he packed it in it's just a, a masterpiece um Whereas this one, as I said, there, there's a bagginess to the structure. It's not quite as tight, um, even though in the end he does have that really nice trick of the the increasing panel number that I think is really impressive. I think that this is really good. And when I say it's third of my of the annuals, that is not a slight. I think this is a really good issue. Um, I just happen to think that um, the first date's last rights issue is on another level it is it is one of the best issues of batman ever it's just so good and then the the good boy story is just i mean it justly won an eisner it's just really well crafted and this one is also very well crafted but i think that the the sort of bagginess and the unevenness of the narrative holds it back a little bit even though i know that was kind of the point um but i mean we're talking if if we had to grade it it'd be like batman annual number two is a 10 and then good boy is like a 9.5 and this one's a 9.4 so we're not talking huge differences in right. in score they're they're all really good and it, and the tom taylor batman would probably be like an 8.5 it's still very high i also don't like dogs so that's why it also got a little bit of a i don't like dogs either <laughs> but i still love the story i don't know why okay so let's let's move from there into the um our ratings what would you give this out of five batarangs hmm. i guess i'll say a four i really did like it a lot it took me i'm a while also going to like give it, it a four. four yeah and over on the website paul gave this a 4.5 out of five batarangs giving this overall score of four out of five batarangs that does it for our reviews let's move on to greater gotham We're just going to do a quick run-through of all the titles that released. We had Brian Bendis and Nick Darrington's Batman Universe, number four. We had Batman vs. Rachel Ghoul, number two, by Neil Adams. The Batman's Grave by Warren Ellis and artist Brian Hitch, number one. Batman and the Outsiders, number six, by Brian Hill and Dexter Soy. Catwoman, number 16. Uh, I don't actually remember what that one's by. Event Leviathan, number five, by Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Maleev. Gotham City Monsters, number two, by Steve Orlando. Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, number two, by Jody Hauser and Adriana Mello. The Joker, Year of the Villain, by famed movie director John Carpenter, um, Anthony Birch, and artist... 
Ooh, I feel bad. I think it's Philip Tan. Uh, Nightwing number 65 is still a thing that's happening. Tales from the Dark Multiverse, Nightfall number one by uh, Kyle Higgins and Javier uh, Fernandez. Batman, Curse of the White Knight number four by Sean Gordon Murphy. Batgirl number 40 by Cecil Castellucci and Carmine D.G.M. Domenico. Batman Beyond number 37 by Dan Jurgens. Batman Superman number 3 by Josh Williamson and David Marquez. Red Hood Outlaw by Scott Lobdell. Batman The Outsider's Annual by Brian Michael Hill. Deceased number 6 by Tom Taylor. Harleen, number two, by Sjepin Sijic, and Nightwing Annual, number two, by Dan Jurgens. Um, we have reviews of every title that I just listed out. There's a lot of them, and many of them are quite good. I'd like to do our Bat Signal highlight right now. For me, the Tales of the Dark Multiverse uh, Nightfall was the one I want to highlight. Not necessarily because I thought it was the best story of the year. I mean, we had a lot of strong stuff with um, Deceased and Batman's Grave and Batman Universe and Event Leviathan. These are all interesting stories that are going on. Oh, and of course, Joker the Year of Villain, which got a lot of buzz and I thought was very well crafted. But Tales from the Dark Multiverse is sort of leading into the event that I am calling in my head Dark Crisis, which is the sequel to Dark Knight's Metal by Scott Snyder, and I believe the artist is probably going to be Greg Capullo again. Um, These tales from the Dark Multiverse are framed by this sort of universal guardian who's looking at all these dark multiverses and trying to find if there's hope. Uh, The first one being Nightfall, and the next one coming out this week is... Uh, Death of Superman, we get a couple more. I like these ideas. My only real complaint is that they're one-shots. I feel like this Dark Tales from the Dark Multiverse Batman Nightfall could have been an entire miniseries, similar to the Nightwing The New Order miniseries that Kyle Higgins did with Trevor McCarthy a couple years ago. There's just so much interesting stuff, and so many characters, I think, kind of got the shaft just because they didn't have room to breathe. So I I like these ideas. I think that it's really cool that we're seeing these Elseworlds based on famous properties. Uh, personal notes, uh, Tales from the Dark Multiverse, Blackest Night, based on the Jeff Johns Green Lantern event, has a store exclusive variant by artist Kendrick Lim starring Stephanie Brown Batgirl as a Black Lantern. (laughs) And you can bet that I ordered that already. So you should definitely (laughs) check that out and maybe shell out some uh, $15 plus shipping to buy it yourself. Um, Do you have any spotlights, Steph? I was a little naughty and didn't read too much, but I literally, while you were talking, finished Deceased number six. And, oh, it was so good. It was so hopeless. It was so German. I loved it. But it does end with an element of hope and something bad you think happened didn't happen. And so there's this, it's, it was good. It was, it was good. It was dark and it was wonderful. I think there's just too many happy comics. <laughs> I need a little, little despair in my life. Um, and then You should definitely read Harleen did, then. Oh, yeah, I know, right? And then, um... To even that out, I also did like, one of the only other ones I read, was uh, The Red Hood, 
again, I, I couldn't care less about the plot. The plot is whatever, but I just love all the characters and I like all the villains that are in in um Jason's class and and now Pup Pup spoiler is sentient and he talks and he's a character now and I love it. <laughs> I love Pup Pup. And so and now spoiler again Bizarro and Artemis are back on Earth. And hopefully there will be a reunion soon. But uh, I'm just so excited. The relationships in that in that series just make it for me. I, I love all of them. I, I agree. I haven't read it consistently, but I do really love the relationship between Bizarro, Artemis, and Jason. I think yeah. that's, against all odds, this Dark Trinity idea turned out to be a really cool one just because Lobdell makes you care about all of them in different ways. They're not all clones. They have different goals. They have different voices and desires, yet they're all heroic and sympathetic. And that's really cool. I, I definitely would recommend checking out Red Hood, um, even in the trade, just to get a better sense of the whole arcs of the relationships. All right. So we just have a couple more things. We have the Show Your Support for TBU on the website is a button. You can donate through PayPal. You can buy merch, which also supports us. And we have our Bat Fan Appreciation Wall, which highlights people who have supported us. Let me go ahead and read that. It's Arturo Juarez, Jay Dutton, Stephanie, Jerry Green, Erwin Nahat, Hannah Gar, Anthony Loray, Real No Deuces, Ben Grader, Donovan Grant, Brendan Roberts, Robert Lewis, Donald Townsend, Rob O, Mary Garrett, Captain America, and Johnny McCloskey. We really appreciate all of your donations. I hope that you will continue to donate. And what's more important, let us know what you'd like to hear, what you'd like to see, any kind of articles. We're looking to have a really exciting next year. We've got all sorts of plans for how to shape our articles and our reviews in ways that I hope will generate more interaction. And we really look forward to you guys participating, commenting, joining our Discord, tweeting at us, and letting us know what kinds of things would draw you in, would cause you to have more engagement. So let us know through Twitter at Batman Universe on Twitter or on the website or send us an email, which is linked on the website. Or if you're a patron, go ahead and leave us a message on our wall. All these options are welcome and we would definitely appreciate any interaction uh, because this week we don't have any mail to respond to. I'm going to pose a question for our li listeners inspired by the recent release of the new Terminator film, which I haven't seen, but is getting mixed reviews. I would ask, what robot would you like Batman to fight? It can be an in-universe robot like Ascalon, Azrael's evil robot brother, or Brother I slash the Omax, or something out of universe like the Terminator. Uh -huh, and there's many, so you'd have to pick one. Um, or one of the Matrix machines like Agent Smith. And how would Batman win? Because, of course, Batman would win because he's Batman. So send us your answers either as a tweet or an email or a comment on the website, and we'll definitely read them on the next episode. I was thinking K-9 from the old Doctor Who. Well, you, you should save that and comment on the, on the episode. <laughs> Watch 2017! <laughs>
All right. So for our monkey watch, we have a quick question, um, which is, what are your least and most favorite things about the fall season? Hmm. Well, I'm in Texas, so I like that I can go outside and not sweat instantly. So that's nice. Um, and I do love the colors, but actually here in, in, in East Texas, we do have quite a lot of evergreen trees. I, I moved from Washington to here, and I was actually quite surprised at how the color didn't really change all that much. I went from green to green. Um um, and my least favorite thing is that it can get into 30 degrees at night and then 70 degrees the next day, and that's normal, and that drives me bonkers because you have to really layer. It's like you have to wear your tank top on the bottom and then your parka on the outside, and you will use both those things during the day. <laughs> it's a little frustrating, but that's all I have to complain about is is the temperature aneurysm that Texas has. <laughs> Good choices. So <laughs> I would say my least favorite thing about fall is the weird holidays that we tend to have. I, I'm the kind of person who thinks that Halloween gets too much play. I don't mind the kids having a lot of fun dressing up as superheroes. I think that's great, sort of a community activity. I'm not a big fan of all the haunted houses and scary movies and blood-soaked decorations all over the yeah. house. It's just not my, my scene. Um. And then we go straight from Halloween to Christmas without any celebration of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays. I just love eating all the food and celebrating what we're thankful for with my family. That's one of my favorite holidays. So my least favorite thing is just how the commercials and all the things sort of don't give any space for Thanksgiving and just sort of cash in on the things they can sell stuff for. Mm. Uh, my favorite thing. Being thankful. What are you going to sell? <laughs> food. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Uh, my favorite thing, probably, I mean, other than, of course, Thanksgiving itself, would be, I, I also love the weather. I'm in Minnesota, so it's much less variable. It does go from pretty chilly to just sort of cool. So you you should layer a little bit, but you're not layering quite as much as tank top to winter coat. <laughs> um, but I we do get really great colors. Uh, we just raked a ton of leaves last night, and we still have a ton to do. So I, I really love just being in fall the, the season is my, one of my favorite seasons and i was born in this season so i have an affinity for it i was gonna say um, raking is one of my least favorite things about <laughs> fall well i love jumping in the leaves i rake getting outside ugh. <laughs> I'm a lazy well one. that will wrap us up for this episode of the batman universe comics podcast thanks for listening and we look forward to hearing from you next time this has been Ian, and have a great couple of weeks. Give me the morphine forever. No way. A person on morphine all the time would constantly dissolve in inappropriate laughter. <laughs> yeah.